Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the Ask Industry Podcast, episode 103. We're back. I'm over the moon to be back. I've loved my break, uh, I'm not going to lie to you, I've really enjoyed taking a few months off from this, but uh, I am really excited to be back and to be producing the show again. Quick thank you to everyone who came to see my show at the Edinburgh Fringe, um, as regular viewers, viewers, as regular listeners will know, the reason I took some time off from this was to focus on the show as it was kind of taking over my life a bit and it was making me better at producing audio podcasts and not better at doing comedy and my main interest in life is being funnier live so uh, I, I feel like the show was better for it and I'm really proud of it and I broke even I broke even for the first time at the Edinburgh Fringe that's exciting uh, so thank you very much for everyone who came along I've already signed up for 2019 so if you're going to the Edinburgh Fringe next year look out for me there but it's a bit early for the plug um, also thank you very much to everyone who sort of nicely asked and also some people who badgered asking where the podcast had gone and when it was coming back it was absolutely lovely no matter how I really enjoyed the fact that a lot of people said to me they missed the show they were looking forward to it coming back they they sort of you know were like oh I, I listened to it at the gym and you know I, I don't have anything to listen to there or I listened to it in the bath or I you know listened to it on the way to gigs all this sort of stuff it's really nice like so if you do see me out and about at a gig or wherever do say thank you if you want to support the show and keep me motivated and keep me making them because it really means a lot and and I can't thank you enough for making me feel like the audience is still going to be there when it comes back because a big worry of mine when I took the pause or the timer or the height whatever was that people would forget the show existed which sounds really stupid because I don't know anyone else doing this so it would be odd for it to just not exist and for people to not be interested in it anymore. So anyway, I just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who's been really supportive of the break, for everyone who's been really supportive of the show coming back, and generally everyone who came down to see me at the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, I, I, honestly, it was my favourite fringe I've ever done, and um, this podcast was part of it. Um, I don't mean the show, I mean this specific episode. For those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio, and today... I think all of those places. Uh, Phil Jupitus is a comedian, writer, podcaster, radio presenter, and all-round good egg. 
He rose to fame via the British panel show Nevermind the Buzzcocks, which we got into and we discussed his views on the TV industry. We discussed why he wouldn't have done Nevermind the Buzzcocks if he'd known the way the industry was going to go. We also talked about his connections with the free and paid fringe and his relationship with them and what he thinks of them when he's designing shows for each of the different areas that he does at Edinburgh and so much more. Like It was a lot uh, and, and I really got loads out of this. I want to do a quick but large thank you to the PBH Free Fringe for setting up the room and giving me the space for free to do this live episode. I also want to thank everyone who came down. It was a really last minute turnaround for us to get this. So I've been trying to get Phil Jupiter on the show for a while and uh, sort of everything kind of didn't match up. And then uh, we've intermittently been discussing it for like sort of July and August. And then very last minute, we sort of managed to nail down a date and a time and we decided to do it live. And we managed to fill out a lot of the room, which is great because Edinburgh is so busy and manic for everyone. I was so humbled by the number of people who came down to enjoy the live show. So thank you very much for everyone who supported the PBH Free Fringe for all their hard work and for everything they did to supply the room and the space and the tech and everything. I love doing it and I have plans to do a podcast daily. I don't want to say that too soon. Next year at the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, That's in progress though. So look out for that. It might be this podcast or it might be something slightly different. That's all I'm going to say on that for now. Before I hit play on the episode, if you're new here, please do remember to hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please do consider giving us an honest, ideally positive review in iTunes. And either way, please do join the Facebook group. It's called RC Industry Podcast, and it's on Facebook, obviously. But for now, this is Phil Jupiter's. <laughs> Perfectly reasonable. Um, Phil, um, the, the way I thought we'd run this, as I said to you before, is I've got questions that have been submitted from the podcast community that I've got building and if anyone of you wants to contribute a question or do something if you just want to raise your hand uh, you can come up and ask it through my mic and we'll keep the conversation going as a sort of open dialogue and that's okay with you yeah yeah lovely. Sweet. okay um i thought starting with uh stage name yeah because you have a stage name comedy and poetry yeah well actually no phil jupiter's is my given name as in, as in you, you you've gone with that instead of porky so, oh yeah yeah so, yeah so what's the reason why you went with a stage name versus real name and is there a so the porky the poet just seemed to be uh, there was two reasons firstly it was my nickname at college they called me porky you can work out why yourselves <laughs> There's a very famous... What were we like on swearing on this podcast? Are we all right? Absolutely fine. Well, there's that famous joke, isn't there? Uh, and uh, uh, the, there's a, a man, there's a salesman walking through a village and he sees a little girl in a front garden and she's playing with a puppy. He goes, hello, little girl. Hello. It's a nice little puppy. Thank you very much. What's his name? Porky. Oh, why do you call him Porky? He fucks pigs. <laughs> so it's a very old joke, but uh, I took the ni- I took the nickname of Porky uh, because I worked on a farm. <laughs> a man has impulses, drives, needs, if you will. No, it was just it was just it was my nickname at school. And it stuck, and I was doing poetry, and, and Ian Jury uh, had a song called Percy the Poet, uh, which had a great line in it, Count Dracula of Spectacular Vernacular, which I never forgot. And so I just thought Porky the Poet would work, and I used to, and I kind of drew myself, I drew like an avatar of myself in the early 80s as a pig. 
sort of doing <laughs> gigs and things. So I used to do cartoons of myself in a gig situation uh, as the pig. So it came from there. And also it just, uh, I, was, I had a job at the civil service and I kind of didn't want to use my real name because I had a day, a, a, a work life where my, mm. I used my real name. So I kind of also didn't want work finding out that I was doing gigs at the weekend. Because right. weirdly, I signed the Official Secrets Act. Not that I was going <laughs> on stage doing poems about unemployed people, but <laughs> but I, d I didn't know. I, I, I was only, I was like a teenager, you know, late, what was it? No, so, no, 83, 21. 21, so I kind of didn't know what the deal was with the job and everything. So I thought, well, I'd use a fake name. That'll just save hassle at work. How, how long did you have a day job for into your... Um, so I started in the civil service in 1980 yeah. and... Billy Bragg offered me a UK tour supporting him in March of 1985 and that's when I left. That's the last time I had a normal day job. So that was like the first breakthrough moment where people started coming for you after that? I think, uh, I think it was, I mean, the weird thing was, was like, so I've been doing little poetry gigs around and then Billy taking me on the road exposed me, exposed me to like, I was playing to like 1,500, 2,000 people a night because Billy's crowd sort of, very sort of because what he does is it's poems and music to them his songs it's so lyrically based and so they were listeners and and also he introduced me every night and I was the first act on the bill it was us me the Sid Presley experience who went on to become the Godfathers who are an amazing band and uh Billy would introduce me and then he'd introduce the Presleys and uh yeah so I, I I got into this situation where I was doing these gigs. It's, uh, this really weird thing. I was so delusional at the time. I just thought, oh, you can play uh, two and a half thousand people. So you'll literally, I will step out of this scenario now. And this is the size of audience I play to now. I genuinely, <laughs> I genuinely thought. That, Five thousand. That, 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 that's, oh, okay. So, right. I'm doing these. Oh, I can carry on doing these. Okay. And so, but I just thought as well. I just thought, well, everyone will know who I am now. Yeah. I did 10 gigs with Billy and just and uh I'd, I'd phone up places and I'd, i started to meet <laughs> i started to meet a lot of acts on the circuit you know that was actually uh one of my testicles Those <laughs> i do have um, prosthetic metal <laughs> eastern block knackers which um it's quite it's quite rude to very laugh, long anything, really. i know really, yeah, really. I mean, they 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 often fall out um so uh, you're, you're at that age it's yeah fun. i'm that age it's, yeah, it's an age thing <laughs> One does hang lower than the other, and that was the low one. As you well, can tell from, high the, one. tell from the timbre. So yeah, no. So <laughs> I was so I was doing these gigs with uh, with Rank, and then I came out and I met sort of some comedy people, and they said you should be phoning venues and getting gigs. And I remember the first time I called the comedy store in the late eighties, and saying, "Oh, Mark Thomas had told me to." Call out. I remember speaking to a brilliant man, the late Kim Kenny, who used to book the comedy store. I remember phoning him and going, oh, uh, Mark Thomas gave me your number and told me that I should ring you uh, for, for gigs. And he went, what's your name? And I went, uh, Porky the Poet. And he went, we don't book poets, and hung up on me. <laughs> so that, that's when you changed your name? That was my exposure to comedy. And then I thought, well, maybe I should now. Because I was doing, what I realised was that the introductions to the poems were getting longer. Right. We're getting longer than the poetry itself in the set, <laughs> and we're just taking over. It was literally like encroachment. So, so I just slowly phased it out, and I did. I for a, a year, I kind of worked as Phil Porky Jupiter, which was stupid. <laughs> which was just stupid. 
But again, I didn't know. The thing is, is that all of us in comedy at that time, in the in the uh, in the late eighties, early nineties, we were making it up as we went along. We didn't know what the rules were. Well, I was, was going to ask that. So when Billy Bragg took you on tour, yeah, did you feel equipped or good enough at that point to even do that? Well, no, I didn't. No, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. I just a, re- a bloke I really admired and really liked said, "Do you want to support me on tour?" And I was, "Yes, please." I did a lot of that saying yes please to gigs I should have said no to like Harvey Goldsmith asking me to open for the Who not a good idea <laughs> a terrible idea I'm one of the few acts you'll ever speak to Simon who has been booed off at a cancer benefit that <laughs> right there when you've got you know good lord that's a tough crowd when people that are some of the last breaths of their life spent booing you <laughs> <laughs> and you and you carried on. You carried I, well, on. you know, the, th- well, how, no, the, how billet, you, the brag you, gigs were great because, yeah. as I say, his audience were quite into words and things. And so, words and things. Uh, well, they yeah. just, that's it. They're into that lyrical bounce. I was from Essex yeah. like him. I grew up in Barking as well. He quite yeah. liked, he invited me on the tour, you know. So it was like, okay, yeah, I'd love so, to. So it was kind of a youthful naivety of you just going, oh, I, I, I want to yeah. do this, so I'll just take everything. Yeah, I mean, I remember his voice because I said, uh, he phoned me up and I was visiting my girlfriend, or who's my wife now. I was visiting my missus in, uh, she was studying in uh, uh, Sussex. I was visiting her at uni. And uh, you remember before mobiles, you used to phone home for messages and things. And because I, I was getting gigs and things, I used to phone my mum. Anybody call mum? And she went, uh, it's someone called Billy Bragg rang you. And I'm like, all right, okay, all right, I've got his number. And I rang him, I rang him up. Uh, and I uh, was like, oh, Bill, it's Porky. And he went, oh, Porky, uh, listen, mate, I'm going on tour next year in March. Oh, I wondered if you fancied coming on as the opening act. I went, oh, yeah, it'd be brilliant. I'll quit my day job. I actually said to him, I'll quit my day job. And he went, do not quit your day job. <laughs> he could see that the responsibility yeah. of yeah. my life disintegrating <laughs> was in his hands. Yeah. I literally, the first thing I was like, oh, I'll quit my day job. No! <laughs> He hadn't factored in anything about. Oh no! Yeah, yeah. It was just. It was just. I just remember his. No, don't do that. How? How did you ever get imposter syndrome at that time? Did you ever? No, th- I no. no. Well, no. It's just because. It was just really good fun. It was a lot of discovery as you went along. I mean, I, uh, I've got on my on my wall in my Edinburgh flat. I've got a, a poster, of that the gig from that tour. Uh, that where we played Glasgow and that was the first day I ever came to Scotland 27th of April 1985 was the first day I came to Scotland right so as a young English political poet right coming to Scotland right Glasgow <laughs> Barrowlands <laughs> my first ever gig in Scotland was Barrowlands and I tell you what a crowd of 2,000 Scottish people fucking love it's <laughs> a little English bloke telling them how to think politically <laughs> So it just appears to be a podcast about gigs where I was booed off. So did you not? I, I, rem- you, I just remember. It's as your I fault walked, for not googling what this podcast is about. Exactly. As I, as I walked off the stage, I remember a crowd of lads following me and pointing at me, going, "You're fucking cleaned," like that. These Glasgow mods who wanted to beat me up. Yeah, yeah. And I was shaking so fucking hard after that gig and crying. And Billy Bragg sort of, he was holding me. I was sitting in the toilet rocking, <laughs> like like properly just rocking. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't believe that. And he went, Paul, it's not personal. That's just the noise they make. <laughs> <laughs>
so, so when you started in comedy, had you had you just started doing your funnier poems, or did you actually start no. with material? Well, it's, there was Pete Jenner, who was Billy's um, manager. Uh, I remember because I had the set and I used to do it, and we were, we, and so I was I was travelling with Billy, Billy's manager, and tour and and was his tour manager as well, Peter Jenner. So Billy used to go from gig to gig in a Volvo estate, and in the back of the Volvo estate, he had an amp, a guitar, a spare guitar, a spare amp just in case and his luggage and Pete's luggage and my bag and that was it and so it was a very and I was in the I was sat in the back of the Volvo so I was traveling with Billy himself and we stopped at the services and Billy went for a slash and uh, Pete was sat in the car with me and he went uh thing about opening for Billy Porky is his audience uh his audience are, are you know they're quite political so you know with regards to what you actually do uh probably best if you're supporting Billy open with politics, close with politics, and put all the piss and shit fun in the middle. <laughs> which, as, which saw me very well through that tour, I have to say, as a policy, as a policy, yeah. But on that, on that tour, you were booked as a poet? Yeah. So after yeah. that, you started doing comedy? No, I, was oh, a po- no. I remained a poet until... So I was Porky the Poet from 83 until I suppose I killed him properly... Well, I did the Style Council tour, right, officially, and I'll send you a, a photo that you can put, uh, and I might show it around the room because I think I've got it on the phone. Uh, it, uh, I supported the Style Council at Hammersmith Odeon, and, and again, I was talking to Weller, and he goes, uh, Paul, are you, uh, uh, you're doing the Odeon with us? And uh, I was, oh, yeah, that'd be great, Paul. And, um, and he goes, uh, he goes you, uh, you're going to have your name up on Hammersmith Odeon. Is there anything special you want? And I went, and I thought the way to go out from being a poet would be to have it on a on a on a billboard at Hemsworth Odeon. So I have got a photo of the sign at Hemsworth Odeon, right? So it says the Style Council, and then underneath it says plus the last ever performance of Porky <laughs> the Poet. Uh, they had to use so many letters to get me in. <laughs> My bit is twice as wide as the Style Council. <laughs> So I'll send you that photo. So, yeah. but that so technically, so yeah, it was the the autumn of nineteen eighty seven was when I stopped. So I did four years of just being Porky the poet. Yeah. And did you want to stop doing that at that point? Yeah, I just realised that it was it, we just I, could, I just couldn't get gigs. You know, I was asking. <laughs> the thing is, you ask other poets, how oh, can you get me gigs? And they can't get their own gigs. So right. I remember. I mean, Attila the stockbroker was an incredible, incredibly supportive bloke to me. Uh, but when I I said I can't. I can't get any further, John. I don't know what to do. How can I get further? And he went, and he and he and he was like, "Well, I can't." He kind of went, "I can't really help you. I've kind of done all I can now because he's he's got to get his own gigs. Mm. He can't be booking me as well. He he did he put loads of gigs on, and whenever he could, he would book you. But there was a point beyond which that I think your poets. It's a very finite world of work for a poet, and so you can't be carrying two of you career-wise. So I understand him sort of. Just he did sort of say, I can't help you. He went, no, I can't do any more. And I, that with and that you ring, you you found all the gigs that you can do. There was Apples and Snakes, which is a poetry collective. I did cast new variety gigs for a wee while, uh, and, and that was really good fun for Roland and Claire Muldoon. Apples and Snakes were very supportive in the early days, and then and then you know all of the other 
I was meeting comedians by doing new variety gig, mm. new variety gigs and apples and snakes gigs. I was starting to meet comics, and uh, they were all saying you should be just doing comedy and on the comedy circuit. And in fact, it was uh, it was a former editor of Loaded, and he was a um, he was worked on the NME. He was a reviews editor on the NME. James Brown, he was the first person who said to me, "The poems aren't that good." <laughs> What you're saying between the poems <laughs> yeah. is, is that's brutal. That's, yeah, yeah, but he's, that's, that's James though. Yeah. You know, he's 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 from Leeds. That's Leeds, isn't yeah. it? Your poems are shy. You should just do the talking. That's better. Just do the talking. So that was pretty much what he said. Yeah. Weirdly, we had a kind of we had did, an did online. No, no, because I kind of I kind of as well thought I knew that the chat was getting more laughs and was more and was also more fun to do the freedom of just saying ideas without having to put them structure them and make them rhyme and then do an introduction to them just chatting i'm like wow this is good but i didn't even know it was a thing i didn't know that comedy as a form of just talking to people i always thought comedians were guys in velvet jackets with bow ties who were foul about asian waiters and their mums you know I thought that's what being a comedian was, was so, so belittling that, people. So that was what you saw on, like... like just on TV. telly. These yeah. comedians were structured blokes who told jokes. And, and I didn't realise. I'd not seen Billy Connolly at the time. I'd not seen Richard Pryor. You know, I didn't know. The first comedian who was weird and off-centre who I saw was actually Steve Martin. Now, he was on Parkinson in... And that was the thing where it wasn't what inspired me to be a comedian, but it was what told me that just being daft and having weird ideas can be a form of entertainment. And that he was very daft. And I bought his albums, and that's, they're the first comedy albums I got, and I played them over and over and over and over and over again. And just, you know, and I was like, wow, this is something different. And I didn't know what it was. And then I started to sort of investigate more. And I found out that there were people that did it in in the UK. And I started to meet them and gig with them. You know, you know Mark Thomas and Kevin Day in the early days. There was a great uh, comedian called Pat Condell who I used to gig with. Uh, you know, when I started meeting the comics, Jeremy Hardy, mm. I remember doing an audition uh, for Cast New Variety. And I auditioned the same day as Jeremy. We both tried out to get gigs for Cast on the same day. You know, look, you know, Jeremy's... You know, a comedy legend, for God's sake. There's, there's a reoccurring theme on this podcast of mm. people when they start not seeing what they wanted to see or not seeing something they wanted to be. So they had to yeah. kind of either make that happen think, or seek it out. But I think that the, the um, what's interesting is, is I, I was never particularly ambitious. I knew that I wanted to do it. And so I went as far as I could. But I, I wasn't like, I, if I didn't get gigs, I wasn't like, oh my God, I've not got that gig. I wasn't upset ever. I'm like, oh well. I was very kind of laissez-faire about it. And if I wasn't getting gig work, I'd just get, I'd get like, um, you know, jobs with mates and things. I, I mean, I ended up working for Billy Bragg's record company, Go Discs, just answering the phone. They said, um, the guy that ran the company and his missus were going on holiday. And they, they knew me through Billy because I was always doing gigs with Billy. And they went, um, we're, we're going on holiday for two weeks. Would you answer the phones at the record company for us for two weeks and take messages? And I'm like, yeah, fucking hell. We'll give you 100 quid a week. I'm like, not half. <laughs> so I sat, in a, I sat in an office in Hammersmith with a pad and a pen and a lot of crosswords and books <laughs> and answered the phone for two weeks with, with, a, couple of, with a couple of mates who are mates to this day. You know, it was great fun, yeah.
That's amazing. So, so your first experience of doing comedy, yeah. Obviously, the open mic circuit would have been. You were in London at this point. Yeah, yeah. What was the open mic circuit like in London at that point? Was it all variety nights or any dedicated comedy nights? Um, no, um, there was standing clubs. So you'd phone a club. What I did was, what happened was that changed it. Was so I was at the record company, and it was like, now do I make a career in the record company? That was uh, being heckled by Kraftwerk. <laughs> and that was um, I've already done that joke today but it worked so well earlier I thought I'd do it again um, if you could all turn your phones off that um, uh, really that appreciate it so uh, so yeah I was doing um, where was I I was at the record company and there was a point where I could have tried to make a go of a life in the music business and it, it just wasn't for me, you know, I, I enjoyed it. You know, I went to the Brits one year and I'll never forget seeing uh, uh, Christy Burr trying really hard to be mates with you too. <laughs> but you know that, you know that how, you know, the, the kid, the kid that hangs around with the cool kids at school and he's always there. Oh, you're so, oh, you, lads, lads, oh, oh. He's doing that at the Brits. I'll never forget it. <laughs> So I went to the Brits one. And also what I liked about the Brits was they had a disco after the... Imagine that, the entire world of music in 1987 or whatever it was, having the Brit Awards, and then afterwards, just like a really shit disco, like at a wedding. <laughs> and the first people on the dance floor, at that, and fucking all of them went out with their girlfriends who were dancing with a cure. The <laughs> <laughs> cure were the first people on the shit disco dance floor. And they were fucking loving it. <laughs> I don't know. They, all put, they put their handbags down and everything. I mean, it wasn't Robert's handbag. It was the girls. But yeah, they were yeah. dancing around their wives' handbags, just having a great night out. You know, it was like the Cure's attitude to the Brits was like, it's the annual work. Do. <laughs> just go and, have a, go and have a pint and everything. They were great. So how long, because at this point you're sort of doing odd jobs and maybe even the yeah. civil service, how long did you have a day job for before you went full-time? Um, so the record company I stayed till, uh, so yeah, it was sort of 89, 90, when I sort of, I realised, yeah, it was early, early 1990. Um, I think I gave me notice Christmas 89, and so I left the job in 1990. Hang on, what September? Late September. Yes, ninth. Yeah. So yeah. So I gave me notice in December. Right. And I was quitting the job, and uh, and I uh, the deal that I made with uh, my girlfriend was because um, I was earning whatever it was at the record company, and I said, look, I really like to make a go of this comedy if I could, you know, because I was doing a few gigs here and there, bits and bobs for various people, and I said I'd like to make a go of it. And she said, and we, because we, you know, she said, well, if you can make what you do at the office or, you know, close to that, doing that, that you love, then you should do that. Why don't you try for six months and then we'll take a view after six months, right? So we did that. We did that. And then uh, I'd given my notice in at the record company. And so I was going to really, was going to, was going to just sort of planning everything and then in the middle of January in the middle of January I'd been to see West Ham play I think it was someone like Blackburn and they beat them 3-2 but they were 1-0 down and then they drew and then they were 2-1 down and then they drew and in the last minute they won 3-2 it was a great game and I remember I got home 
and I went, got home to the flat to the girlfriend, and I went, I went, uh, I went, hello, love. She went, hi. And I went, we beat Blackburn, 3 2. She went, I'm pregnant. I went, did you not hear? <laughs> <laughs> what? 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 I'm pregnant. And I went, oh. And she went, that's not the reaction I was hoping for. Uh, and I was like, no, no, it's just, fuck. You know, you've got to process that information. Yeah. So I remember going to the record company and, and, and seeing the, the guy at the record company going and saying, my girlfriend's pregnant. And straight away, bless him, the guy that ran the record company, he did say, do you want your job back? You're going to have your job back if you want. I went, no, I'm going to give this a go. So being an experience, being a, a, a soon-to-be father, that really sharpened up the the fact that I was going to be, uh, yeah, the comedy, the, 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 I had to, it gave me focus, it gave me a lot of focus, so I got very, very business-like about, so I treated getting gigs like a day job, so every, every, I'd get time out every Tuesday afternoon, that's when you could get it in London, mm. and I would phone every comedy club and asked for open spots, all of them, all of them, every single one that I wasn't doing regularly, and I'd ask, get tips from other comics who I could call, and I just started doing, so they were all comedy clubs, they weren't, the variety aspect of it was dying down a bit, you'd have the occasional magician, mm. uh, uh, jugglers were kind of big in the late 80s, early 90s, lots of jugglers, the two marks were really big, um, uh, Steve Rawlings was an amazing juggler, he did junglers a lot, and so, so there's all the little comedy clubs. So the two you wanted to crack were the store and junglers. You wanted to get the store and junglers because you could make a living. Because if you did the store uh, one weekend a month and uh, junglers one weekend a month, that was more money than I was getting at the record company if I did two weekends a month for big comedy clubs. And so it took me two years from that point when my daughter was born well, from when my daughter was conceived, to she was about a year old when I, when I cracked both, uh, junglers and the store. It took a while, but yeah, got there in the end. But yeah, those early days of doing every single gig that you possibly could, travelling all the way across London on a train to do five minutes in a Mexican restaurant in Sydenham, that sort of thing, upstairs in a Mexican restaurant. And I remember, who's that lad with the wooden eye from the pirate films? Oh, uh, Mackenzie Crook. Mackenzie Crook. Mackenzie Crook used to do an act. Do you remember? I don't know if you ever did it up here. He used to do an act called Charlie Cheese's Wheel of Cheese, which was a game show about cheese with a big wheel that he span. And then, and then it would land on, your question is, what kind of cheat? You know, that sort of mm. thing. But yeah, Mackenzie used to do that. And I remember when I did the open spot in the Mexican restaurant, it was with Mackenzie Cook and his wheel of trees. <laughs> Mackenzie Crook, isn't it? Crook, yeah. yeah. And, so, and, and after that, so you, you've kind of established yourself <coughs> as a comedian in the London circuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and was there any demand or want to leave to go and do other cities? Or were you just well, content I, at this I was, point? Well, I was... Bearing, I had a baby, so I wasn't that keen on travelling that much. So mm. I did very little out-of-town work. I did some. Uh, if there were comedians that could give me a lift back to London, mm. I, I didn't mind doing out-of-town work. So there was a lot of kind of negotiating. If there was a gig, who else is on the bill? Phone them. Can you give me a lift? Mm. You know, 
is what you didn't want to do. I mean, like in the early days when I, I, I because I'd been touring with Billy, everything was laid on for you. So I'll never forget. I did, I did Lancaster. I've told you this. I got my mates in from Lancaster tonight, Ollie and David, and uh, I did Lancaster University in about 1988. Uh, and this is when I was th- I was at the record company, and I'd like at a weekend I'd go and do gigs sometimes. And I did Lancaster Uni as Porky, and it was a good night. It was a good gig. Because it's the first ever gig I did out of town on my own, and I just assumed that they had a room for me. <laughs> so I'm in Lancaster. I'm in Lancaster. Done this gig. Oh, it's really good. Where am I sleeping? They were like, well, we don't know. <laughs> you should have booked a hotel. I'm like, don't I get one? They went, what? No, you got your fee. And I was like, well, what about? And I'm like, what? No. And uh, I said, I've got nowhere to sleep. And you can't throw me out on the street. And so I remember they said, you can sleep in the common room, but we got to lock it. <laughs> so I was locked in a room without a toilet. Oh. Right? I was like, I don't, don't worry, there's no weird ending to this because I kept <laughs> it in. But I was locked in a room without a toilet. Uh, but what struck me in the night was, if there's a fire... What do I do? Because I was locked in. There's mm. no fucking fire escape in this room. Mm. I was just a bit sort of, oh, that's weird. And I, I kept on, you know those really shit chairs they used to have like at colleges and universities, those low sponge things with metal legs? Mm-hmm. I slept on six of them. I made a bed out of six of them. <laughs> and I used my coat as a blanket. And it was December because it was a Christmas ball. So, and the heating was off. I remember. I remember that was a cold night. That's the the comedy is the new rock and roll period, wasn't it? That was yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but um, at, what, at what point did you decide to go to Edinburgh then? Because was that your first time? Ninety like, one was Edinburgh. Was that uh, your first time leaving London doing comedy somewhere? Yeah. Else? yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I can't. I'm trying. The weird thing is, is that this is memory has defeated me. I don't know if I came to Edinburgh and then decided to do the Fringe. I don't know okay. if I came to visit and then decided to come up and do the Fringe properly. But the first Fringe show I did was with um, was in association with John Mann, the comic who ran the square at Harlow, in that he booked the acts for, for Vic, who actually ran the venue. It's, and the square is a, was a brilliant community venue in Harlow. It was absolutely. Did you ever do the square? Ever play the square? That had gone by the time you lot... That's a shame. It was amazing. Loads of great bands played there. Uh, and so it was John Mann, Lorraine Bowen, who you might remember from Britain's Got Talent with the Crumble song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. she, the Lorraine so, Bowen experience. So, so, it's, so hang on, are, are you saying that you were still opening for bands at this point when you were in Edinburgh? Oh, no, it was oh, more, sorry. no, when I went to Edinburgh, it was just we decided to do a variety show. So okay, we had okay. uh, me and John doing stand-up, little Dave, the poet, Murray Talkerson, a singer-songwriter, and the Lorraine Bowen experience. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and w- so we did a show called The Live Essex Show because we were all from Essex. <laughs> uh, and we did that. So the first show I did in, uh, in Edinburgh was at Marco's. Uh, I don't know if Marco's is still going or still even there. Is it there? Well, it used to be like a sports centre, didn't it? Has it gone? It used to have squash courts. And the reason I know that is because our gig was a squash court. (laughs) The audience came in the back through that Perspex door. (laughs) And then there's seats. And then there was just a black cloth with, you know. And I remember the acoustic. Just, you know, the acoustic of a squash court. And I'm like, hello. Oh, just that single echo. (laughs) So, two blokes. Oaks. (laughs) 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 It's just... That's how shit the fringe was then we're gigging in a squash court yeah it's really funny i like that 
And yeah, yeah. How, how long did it take you then to bring up your own solo show? Like when, when uh, that, uh, five years. So I did the solo show. I did two, the first time I came up with solo shows was 96. And uh, again, I dicked it up because I just did two weeks. And again, it's because I had the kids at that point. By that point, I had two, uh, two daughters. So in 96, I did, uh, I did, um, I did just a Phil Jupiter stand-up show, and then I did the Star Wars show, which was called uh, Jedi Steady Go, uh, which was uh, which was just me doing Star Wars in an hour, basically the film, uh, on my own as a bloke. But just but just talking about when I went to see it and how I felt, and then the story of the film, uh, and that was yeah, that was '96 when I first came up, and that was with two shows. Yeah. And how did that do? Like, how, do, how was your yeah, first Yeah, it did all right. It was, it, it was sort of culty and popular and people liked it. And then I toured that. That was what I toured after that Edinburgh, which was... Uh, you on your own back? Like, you made that... Well, 96 was also the year I started Buzzcocks. So yeah, that's what I was going to Buzzcocks started. Yeah. And then, so, to do that tour once Buzzcocks had started. So, yeah, that did all right, that tour. So, yeah. so if we go back slightly, did you have an agent by the point of coming up to Edinburgh? Yeah, I was with a guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on from that yeah. subject. <laughs> Well, no, I was going to ask how you found your current agent and what you were looking for uh, well, as you were going through This them. is a weird story, and I will tell you it in, very, in, in brief, but I knew <laughs> um, I'm, I'm with Off The Curb, and people mm. will uh, remember uh, with, various, with various affections uh, and with various emotions, we'll remember Addison Cresswell, uh, who was the founder of Off The Curb, and one of, them, one of the men that kind of changed the face of Edinburgh in the way and how... how uh, and, and certainly shift into more uh, an arena for stand-up comedians than just being a, a kind of just fringe arts festival. Um, I was uh, with Addison kind of briefly in the early days, but weirdly his business partner was an old school friend of mine. And that was one of the reasons I kind of didn't stay with him because it was sort of, I was too, it was like, it felt like it was interfering with the friendship. And so I went with someone else who wasn't, I wasn't friends with, I was just an agent. And then uh, he and I did not work out. So um, I went back to Addison and said, uh, I've got a problem with this guy. And Addison <laughs> offered me help immediately. And uh, uh, I'm still with Off The Curb just because, you know, it's a mate. It's weird. I didn't want to be with a mate because I didn't want to mix work and friendship. But why not, to be honest with you? And, uh, yeah, I, I, so I'm, 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 with, I'm, a, I'm one of the... Apart from Jack, I mean Jack's been with them longer, but I'm one of the longest acts that's been with Off the Curb. I, I, I remember Off the Curb used to do a, a a night. I think it was called the Comedy Boom, and it was uh, at the old Pied Bull in Islington. And I did. I remember doing that when I was Porky the Poet, and that's when I met Addison. I did that gig for him in the early days. And he also used to book the Woolwich Tram Shed. He used to do a night called South of Deptford at the Woolwich Tram Shed. So I used to do nights for Addison, and then, and then college gigs for him. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. 
And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. And bits and bobs and yeah. So so if we go back to 1996, yeah. uh, you, so had you, you'd done Edinburgh and then Buzzcocks came out or was it just after? Yeah, it was kind of sort of, um, they were kind of in parallel really. You okay. know, Buzzcocks was kind of being piloted and tried out yeah. through 1996 yeah. and then I was taking those shows up. Did you did you want to start doing panel shows? Was that well? Panel shows weren't. Yeah. I mean, they weren't a thing like they are now. Mm. They had. They think it's all over, and it was like, oh, there's this weird thing where you can do a piss take version of a show. I didn't know that panel show was a format at yeah. the time, and it's only subsequently became one. So there was. They think it's all over, and then obviously the people at, at, at Talkback thought, well, we can just do a music version of they think it's all over and so they picked me and mark and sean sean had a record label mark had a record label mark was on radio one used to debt for mark radcliffe sean was on glr and used to debt for mark radcliffe and i used to work in the music biz and have been on tour with bands a lot house martin star council and Bragg. so uh yeah that was just that was just so we were we were sort of obvious shoe-ins as comics that worked in the music business as well so and and when it first started, uh, social media wasn't really a thing. Yeah. But as it grew, obviously social media became a thing and you yeah. joined different platforms. Yeah. How did that help your fan base and how did you deal with hate I, online as I've well? actually never really, uh, I don't really engage with it. When Once I realised that people bad-mouthing you online could be a thing once you're <laughs> out there personally. Yeah. With Twitter now, Twitter now is just a leafleting service. I don't read it at all. It just stuff goes out. I don't read it back. I don't really use it a lot. I use Instagram more, which is fun, and I just like visuals. Mm. And what people post visually, I like, in terms of just snapshots of the day. I'm a very visual person because I used to be a cartoonist, so I prefer Instagram. Facebook, I don't really get on with. I'm, I'm useless online, basically. I'm not very good. I had a very successful podcast for a couple of years. It was constantly in the top five of the um, iTunes podcast chart called Phil and Phil's Perfect Ten which I did with my former uh, six music producer, Phil Wilding. Uh, and it was it was a good, solid format, but um, I just stopped doing it. I just, you know, I'm, I've, I have an uneasy relationship with, with online because it's just like, I don't know, I just, I, it's that that negative side of it. I don't want that in my life. And it's very easy to avoid. But if you do avoid that, then you avoid the positive as well. And I'm, I'm per- perfectly willing to give that up to just not have the noise in my life. So, you know, yeah. And also the positive is, it's just people saying, oh, we like what you do. And that, that's, you don't want too much of that. You know, it's nice when people come up and say it in the street, you know. Uh, for someone to come up in the street and cunt you off, they have to have a much more sort of a sense of commitment. And people yeah. have done that. I, I've had a bloke came up to me at Glastonbury and just stood there listing why he hated me. Uh, when I was trying to buy a, a sausage roll, that was a, <laughs> that was really and that kind of and, and I, I remember 
I remember there was a girl stood there who heard it all happening. This bloke stood there. It's really weird because the guy had a National Youth Theatre T-shirt on, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, this is how much you love the arts, you cunt. <laughs> he just stood there, and it's like I was everything. I'm like, and I'm like, and at the end of it, what I wanted to say was, hasn't your telly got an off switch or other yeah. channels? He was talking as if someone had forced him to watch me for two years. That was his mindset. There are you know. less channels then, to be fair. Like, well, <laughs> that's true. That is true. But my thing was, whenever people, you know, it's like whenever people used to say to me, like, the, you know, talk back would send you, you know, emails or you'd hear word from the producers when you went recording. They'd say, oh, we got, we got two million last week. And my thought was always, fucking hell, 68 million people don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how I saw it. Oh, two million watched us last week. That's great. And I'm like, and I used to literally think, oh my god, sixty eight million people fucking hate us. Do you do, you do the same now? Then, so uh, what? How big's your your free fringe room? Do you know, uh, it's like, I've got a seventy two seventy fives basically. Yeah. So if you so if you have that, there's like let's say there's like a hundred thousand people there. Do you ever look at it and go, well, ninety eight thousand two hundred and whatever? <laughs> like don't give. Oh me no, 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 it's more that no. Well, what it is what I like now is I now all of that that I used to kind of think of, I don't anymore. Right. I just every day's a bonus when you're fifty six and you weigh twenty stone. So. <laughs> I just, I just like, I just like that people come out. I, I had a, I have a laugh that um, we're turning away about twenty, thirty people a morning from Bannermans. Mm. Uh, uh, Porky n never quite full, sometimes full. It's, it's good because it's poetry and people are a bit what, but they don't know that half of it's stand up. I think if I said, but I don't like to say that. I'd like them to listen to the poetry really. So okay, so, so if we if we stick with yeah. the fringe, you've you've been doing the fringe for how many years now? Uh. So it, it, sporadically since ninety one, so yeah, yeah, so twenty seven years odd. And and now you do a paid and a free show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do two free and a paid. Yeah, yeah. and originally were you just the free or were you just the paid? Is there, um, how's that come I, out? When I discovered the free, mm. and I was like, I just really liked the idea of it. And as soon as I knew it existed, I asked if I could do it. Mm. So I've d I've done PBH for seven years. Is, is it seven years, Chris? Oh. When I did that first one. Uh, yeah. Down at, where was that? What was that venue on Queen Street? That big weird room, that the Jam House. Yeah, yeah, the Jam House. So I did the Jam House, which the Jam House, which was enormous. And I used to get like on a Saturday, I'd get like four hundred people in, and the bucket was less than I got this morning. <laughs> seriously, seriously, I get like I got like, and I'd think I was doing really well if I got two hundred quid from four hundred people. And it was like, because I never did a bucket speech. I just used to say, thanks for coming. It's really nice to see you. Ta-ta. And also, I never did my own bucket. I had my goddaughter. My goddaughter did the bucket. And it, you, you don't learn things like that. I didn't, no one said to me, do your own bucket until two years later. And when I did my own bucket, the money doubled. Like, literally, <laughs> the money doubled in one. And also... You know, it's you hearing yeah. that comedians, yeah, <laughs> but just do you, 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 are the per and say thank you to them for coming. Yeah. And the thing is, I'm generally, it's not that I'm not bothered, but I don't. If people just shake me hand and say thanks, that's great, good, I'm glad you had a nice time. Generally, no malice. Yeah, but, it, you know, I've been, I've been told, and uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been told that you, you donate your entire bucket to PBH to I, keep no, it going. No, I did. Oh, oh sorry. I okay. did the first year. I gave yeah. them all the bucket because yeah. I had such a laugh. Yeah. And then now it's my fucking job. So right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I haven't got a pop quiz anymore for the last four years. So yeah. it became my job. But I, you know, it's I like 
it's PBH calls. It's Peter calls or anyone from the organisation calls. I did that video this year for the oh, yeah, for yeah. the for the donation thing, and any little way I can help out. And you know, if if they said, "Oh, we want," if PBH said, "We want fifty quid a show off you," I go, "Yeah, all right." So you know, bear that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's just him, right? That's not. Uh, <laughs> I'm not getting fifty quid. <laughs> Um, oh, that's that, but that's really great. Was that because you just wanted to give back to them? I just like, well, they do such a great job. Mm. You know, I think the free fringe makes. I always uh, Munnery said to me, he said, you know, the economics of a festival are such that you have to have paid shows. Because I was, I'm very, I don't think about things before I say them. But I said, wouldn't it be brilliant if all the shows would just put what you want in a bucket? And think how the landscape would change. But you know, that's that's, it's kind of it's daft and and just too idealistic of me that you know, but. The fact that the free fringe exists is a good thing, and of course, you know, it's inspired other people to do free shows as well. You know, that's just the nature of the thing that you know, someone sees a model and, and copies it. That's just you know, it's like the first people that did rooms in Edinburgh. Then you know, I don't know, was Bedette Coote celebrated forty years, didn't they, at the fringe this year? So the assembly rooms, it's been forty years. I don't know if they were before Karen or not, and and the Gilded, but you know, there was obviously a running order when they went. They suddenly realise, oh, we can do this. Let's start our venues. And everyone, you know, there's no original thoughts in the arts. You know, it's just people trying to find their way. Do you, because uh, as someone who's on pay what you want, so I'm, I'm a combination of the two. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I always wondered whether you would feel more accountability to perform better for a, pay, for a paying public that you know pay, Here's th- or mm. whether you're earning the money. No, interesting thing. Right, so if I know they're paying, I don't view them differently, but I okay. weirdly think that... Uh, I'm in a very, I'm in a more relaxed frame of mind with a free fringe show, which I think sometimes leads to better work. Okay. Because I'm relaxed, whereas you can get a bit tense about. If you start thinking they've paid, they deserve something. You, it's not. You mustn't think of it like that. You're, you're wrong foot your brain. You just want to be in a nice inert, and that's why I like. I enjoy. I like the mixture of shows in the mixture of places around Edinburgh. Edinburgh is such a beautiful city. The thing that's really, really fucked me off in the last two years is that whoever it is that's blocking uh, the the there being stuff in St Andrews Square. I hate that. I absolutely hate that. That they're saying, oh no, it's 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 noisy and it interferes and it interferes with pedestrian traffic. Yeah. So what about Christmas when you put a fucking ice rink in St Andrews Square? <laughs> And and there's an ice rink and a Christmas market and a fucking Spiegel tent at Christmas at Christmas there and then there's all that stuff that goes on Princess Street. You don't moan about that, do you? What what what? And it's that that fringe is an Edinburgh fringe, and they're trying to literally push everything uh, um, south of Cowgate. They want the fringe south of Cowgate on the old side of town. Uh, someone does. I don't know who, but it's someone that's got a lot of juice because they're making it happen. Bring back St Andrews Square. I thought it was going to be a clap then. I was no, no, no. We've, we've already had the clap for that as an idea. Whenever I do yeah. interviews now on BBC or anything, I always I bang on about that a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I understand the, the stand. Uh, it's obviously hit them hard because... Yeah, yeah, no, yeah I mean, I, I, I understand how it impacts the stand, but it's also, I think, for Edinburgh as a festival city because that boulevard, George Street, when it's done up right for the festival with St Andrews at one end and the book festival at the other, that is a magical walk that you do through all the events and the things and the shops and everything. That is the integration of Edinburgh as a commercial city with Edinburgh as a cultural city Mm. is that George Street walk there because Princess Street can't have gigs on it because it's fucking Princess Street, Mm. you know, and the Royal Mile can have some venues on it, but it's not like that and it's got the tattoo and everything. But I think George Street is is, is the perfect place for where the two can rub up next to each other 
together with the assembly rooms at that central point and then when they used to not have cars parking down there and have venues along mm. you know they had um, uh, uh, demountable spaces and bars and things along George Street it was brilliant mm. and that's you know that's when the city comes alive and at Christmas George Street is all lit up and has got yep. bars along it you know they can do it at Christmas why aren't they doing it in August uh, uh, I'm not asking uh, you no 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I'm the guy who's moving it to... No, yeah. <laughs> this is what I brought you here for. <laughs> um, no, I was going to ask you a question, but it feels it feels like a tangent now, but I'll ask yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like when someone gets to a certain level of fame or a certain level of notoriety, they have people that will come regardless, and they'll have people that will support them. Yeah. And so getting feedback or, getting, or improving sort yeah. of doesn't stagnate, but it sort of hits a, a plateau. Do you find that you get better feedback from paid or free? And, and if so... Is that a factor for you? Uh, I uh, do, you, do you see yourself as famous? No. Okay. I think famous is... I think I'm known. Right. And I think that's not famous. Right. I think I'm known and recognised. That's not famous. Um, I... Yeah, what... I My feedback is laughter and the noise in the gig. And that's the only feedback I work from. So if I have a quiet one... I think about right what might have gone wrong with that gig but at no point do I go I I I caught well what did you think of that or how about this or how about that and I've never used the director mm. I've got these instincts that serve me okay I mean it'd be interesting to but I'd love you know if someone noted you and told you what to do it'd be interesting to know how it would affect the act you know and, and what you did or whether I'd whether I would change things, so mm. yeah, I, I've I literally go on each gig. It's mm. it's it's like gig. It's almost like I've got a Men in Black pen. <laughs> After the gig, start again. After the gig, start again. Yeah, you know. And and in terms of so obviously your comedy career was coming up as you were doing uh, Never Mind the Buzzcocks. Yeah, which is an obviously an edited panel show. Yeah, which means that you're portrayed in a way potentially that you're Editors, you don't get control over the editorial. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And you're not always able to pick what gets Yeah, it's, it's sort of why I stopped watching, really, because I realised that when you'd have a good show, you'd you'd see it back and it looked like a shit show mm. because you had a great night yourself, but everyone's got to be in it mm. and the editor's got to make sure everyone gets a fair shake. Similarly, if you have a shit show, you watch it and it looks like you had a good night. And I'm like, how the fuck? Now, the editors on those shows are geniuses, but... Um, <laughs> But they have got to make an entertainment show that gives everybody that was a guest on it some screen time. So, you know. Did, did you ever find that, uh, and I don't want to say your TV persona because you weren't putting that on, they were editing yeah, it yeah, to that. Yeah. Do you ever find anyone started to come to like your Edinburgh shows or your tour shows expecting something different? It's interesting that you, you say, because I'm like, there's a, I think sometimes people expect, there's I don't know why, there was a thing online, someone told me years ago, it says online that you're really unfriendly in the street, and I'm like, <laughs> right, so here's the thing, right, is that would have been written by cunts, because if people are cunts to me, then I'm unfriendly to them. So, but that's reasonable, if, pe that's if yeah. people are malicious, but I am, you've seen me with punters, haven't you? I'm all right with photos, and I'm always, it's the selfies, and the, as long as they're not dicks, mm. and people can even chat to me, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm there and available when I'm at work, when I'm at work and I'm out being Phil Jupiter's going from good, especially somewhere like Edinburgh during the fringe I'm kind of always on you're always on you're always around town mm. people say hello and it's like and that's fine but the second someone's a cunt to me I'll switch off mm. do, you, do you prefer doing panel shows or stand up sets on TV uh, TV 
I kind of it's it's a byproduct of what I do. I don't I'm quite ambivalent about television. I like panel games just because you're with other people and it feels a bit more like on its good night when you're playing with a good idea three of you are playing with an idea and batting it about we did a buzz um buzzcocks no that show's dead now um <laughs> we did a qi that is going out this autumn and it was the one with me uh bills on it bailey and alan and me and bill and alan are dicking about like we used to in the old days can't remember the other guests but there was there was a lot of it's the the people you're familiar with and, and sandy was so occasionally losing control and having to shut us up you know and that's when you know sometimes it just achieves a very silly momentum the show and i like that aspect of it but doing stand-up on telly i kind of i never used to like it until i did live at the apollo and i thought oh this is all right and, and i'll tell you now if you watch on YouTube when I walk on stage on Live at the Apollo, I'm walking onto the stage of the Amsmith Odeon. That's what I'm calling it. That's what it is. <laughs> That's the same stage where I stopped my poetry career. <laughs> that is the same stage. Well, I didn't stop it because I started again. But that's yeah. when I did the farewell gig with the Style Council. That stage. That stage is where I saw my first ever rock gig, Blondie, 14th of September 1978. And I was thinking that you see the door open and me come out and I'm smiling because I'm thinking, I saw Blondie here. <laughs> That's what that smile's about. No. And then I did the gig, and I sort of wasn't looking forward to it, and it went really well, and loads of people I got. I think I got more good feedback for that than anything else I've ever done. I had more people. Weirdly, because it's about being a dad and your daughter having a boyfriend, I've had more dads and parents come up to me and say it was something we found very, very difficult to talk about as a family because... The whole issue of our daughter, we knew. You know, you know, if you've got a teenage daughter, you know she's banging him. <laughs> There's no way she's not going to be banging him if she's of an age. So it's like, you know what, you can be in denial about it as much as you want. But just remember what you were like at that age. <laughs> you were banging the girl. The girl was banging you. You were banging each other. And yet there was this whole deceit of, oh, now, of course, now you, you must wait until... Uh, fucking no! We're hanging out the back of each other. Deal with it. So... <laughs> your, your teenage years sound a lot more fun than mine. Yeah, well, <laughs> but no, but that, it, but that thing, and it was... I've had... I did, I've had I had it happen a few times, like at least ten times. I've had families come up and say it was it was something that we found difficult to discuss as a family. And we saw that on telly. We watched it and we started talking about the fact that right. Well, I've had families that have kind of and it, and it say that it broke the tension of a quite awkward <laughs> situation in 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 the family and it's weird to think that it does something like that but you know i'm not saying i changed the world with a bit about my daughter <laughs> knobbing her boyfriend yeah. but it's that 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 people made an effort to come up and say that bit you know and i tell you what when i'm touring that you you notice certain uh demographic types i'm very big with uh it's sort of late mid late teenage daughters and fathers coming to see me dads will bring daughters to come and see me because it's like i'm i'm an avatar for them uh this is what i'd be like if i was funny love it's almost <laughs> feel, it almost feel it almost it almost it almost feels a bit like that i'm i'm the the joke that they share 
you know. Mm. And I the the other avatar I get is fat bearded men with glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I get a lot of that's the other sorry demographic that I get. I'll get a lot of big chunky blokes with glasses, and their girlfriends always want a photo with me. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh man did you did you pick that set strategic or like did you get any help from your manager weirdly what no no weirdly no. I was going to do something else uh, and it was Anthony bless him who was producing that and I was working on something else and then I went mate I've thought of another bit can I try it and he wanted to see me do it and I did it somewhere and I did it not as well as I did that night on the that was just everything went right that night it was just every, people were just into it and it just went really well yeah, uh, I it was, I don't know. I was I know I was going to do something else, and at the very last minute, I said I will do the bit about about my daughter. And um, yeah, it just it was just yeah. I was, I was I'm very rarely happy with my work. I was happy with that. Would you so so you're not happy with your work, or or you or you? I'm very rarely with television work, especially. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's edited, you know, and it's not it's not what you meant. I remember once uh, I did uh, I did a I had a really good night doing um, an Amnesty International benefit for Izard. Uh, it was a show called We Know Where You Live that was filmed and put out on Channel Four, and I was really excited because I was on at Wembley, and uh, I remember watching that go out, and that was fucking dog shit. They changed the order of the jokes just to swap it round to what would fit their show. And they just changed the order of the set and it just fucking looked like a mess. And I'm like, the fuck? And I'm thankfully, I just said, look, could you send me, please? Could I possibly get an offline of that before you edited it? And I didn't complain or anything, but I just wanted to see it and I watched it and I'm like, yeah, you fucked it right up. Yeah. And so is that the reason why you're a bit ambivalent towards TV? Because you don't get as editorial control? Well, no, it? it's just because I think television, it's, uh, it's much more, it's, uh, it is like, uh, are we familiar with the film Logan's Run? Yeah, I think television's like Logan's Run and my crystal went red a long time ago. Right. <laughs> I'm just not, I'm just not, I'm like Peter Ustinov on telly now. I'm like like a mental old man in a dead library surrounded by cats. Mm. <laughs> so, so when you say you don't like your work, so let's let's focus on your your work yeah, that you yeah, can control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that is that an imposter syndrome thing creeping? Is that a mental well, health I don't know, it's, it's, it's more that, um, oh no, I, I don't, it's, it's um, I very, I very, I, I like was the wrong word. Enjoy. Okay. Enjoy. Like you go and listen to it back. Yeah. Okay. It's like if I w I watched live at the Apollo and I watched all of it mm. and I was happy with it. So and I rarely watched myself because I was oh, just you know. But I watched it to the end and it. I thought wow they did a good job of that, and I thought you did a good job of that. I very rarely take time to kind of be proud. A pride is something that I think eh because I'm too busy moving on to the next thing. I'm too busy worrying about what the next gig or what the next bit's going to be. You know. Mm. You know. But um, I, again, because I like live performing and I feel that I exist more on stage in a live situation and the job feels more mm. natural in a live situation. So I like, I enjoy, when a gig's working well and going well, I think, ah, oh, this is, this is, this is, this is what you do well. Good. Okay. And also when I do that, I'm like, and stop thinking about it. Because so, so once you think about it, it dies. Uh, earlier today when, I, when we were chatting, you yeah. said that you, the reason you like podcasts is because it's, in the moment it's in the room yes yeah and, and 
edited but not edited yeah, in yeah, that way. Yeah. There's and nothing that I've said tonight or I'd be unhappy <laughs> with you putting out. You know? no, 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 that's so not... It's like that, yeah. I wasn't asking that, but I was asking, is that the reason why you liked or you tried podcasting out because you thought no, I'd have more editorial control? I, no, it was more... I quite we Because it was so new at the time, it was like... It's a bit like, what is this? I think mm. a lot of my life has been, what is that? Let's give it a go. Mm. Pretty, a lot of the things I've done, it's like when I was offered to sit in for Johnny Vaughan on The Big Breakfast, I'd never presented a TV show before, but what is that? Let's give it a go. See if it is as terrifying as I imagine it is. And then you find out, oh, no, it isn't. It's actually quite doable. Um, uh, when I sat in for Steve Wright on Radio 2. Wow, Radio 2 afternoon show? Me? Okay, let's give it a go. I mean, mm. I did that for a couple of weeks. Never mm. again. <laughs> But, but you know, I had a go, I'll have a go at anything and just see what it feels like. And if it takes, then I'll mm. then I'll pursue it. But if it doesn't, well, I had a go. You know, I've I've been in, I've, you know, the musicals. I didn't ever intend to be in musicals. But someone asked me, and I thought, wow, dress up as a woman in the West End for a week. I'll have a go at that. You know, <laughs> in in a show, right? Uh, <laughs> you why I order. <laughs> Right, uh, I've got four last quickfire okay, questions. Yeah, but before sure. we do them, has anyone got a question they want to ask? Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, you've got to come to the green microphone, my friend. Yes. Oh, wait, wait, because we've got yeah. very little cable. That's why there we are, better, more cable. You were talking about your poetry gigs earlier on, yeah. and you were saying the gaps between the poems were getting longer and yeah. longer in the yeah. chat. Were you writing that chat, or were you improvising? Uh, no, it was, I was improvising it, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just, it was the introduction to the poems. And what happened was, so you do the introduction, the introduction's always the same, but it started getting bigger. And then, and you keep bits in. And then I was like, wow, they're laughing at that when I say that. And I, I, I never realised it was a thing, but I'm like, oh, this is fun. The introductions are fun. I like the introduction to this one. And so, yeah, but I never wrote it down. No, no. I just knew that the introduction to like the dog shit poem would be boom. And, you know, you knew you did that. You know, so no, never. I never. I don't write any of the comedy. It's all. Uh, it starts out. Um, I'll do a list of things I want to talk about, uh, and then uh, actually do it. Uh, and then uh, I'll record things and listen back, and then try it again. And it's it's from improvised. Uh, my shows are always devised from improvised uh, moments. Yeah, yeah but I'd never sit and write comedy because that's what I've always wanted to do. I'd actually like to write and memorise a show as a piece, like an essay, and see if that works. Because I know Will Durst, the American comic, does that. His poems are written as a monologue, um, but like he sits and writes them and thinks about where the last will be. And I think that is an insanely brilliant skill to be able to write comedy like that, actually write it out longhand and then memorise it and then do it word for word like a long soliloquy amazing any other questions yeah go for it you said the only feedback that mattered to you was the audience laughing or not yeah, laughing yeah. when it came to radio be it six music breakfast oh, yeah. or radio two yeah. what was your barometer for that because obviously you haven't got a well, huge yeah, audience from yeah weirdly I mean it was we just I just I just talk very much to the station controllers and editors are you happy with what we're doing I used to have breakfast with them a lot and go are you happy with what we're doing there was a lot of that is that okay? do you like what we're doing so it, it, I used to talk, the people that had hired me and then I mean on six music we didn't get ratings for six music for three years Rajar couldn't figure out because there were no dab radios Rajar couldn't get figures for for radios so there were no figures for six music until 2005 and they were incredibly low and I was like we've got more listeners than that and uh, I said 
he said, how, you how do you count the online? Oh, we don't count online listeners. I'm like, people are only listening to us online. <laughs> There's no fucking dab radios. You're not counting our listeners. You're just counting the people that have got dab radios that are listening. It's fucking mental. So, that, so, so once um, more people got dabs and six, six musical courses gone from strength to strength ever since the threat and closure when people went mental. But um, I always knew that a station like that would be that popular. And I just, it's really weird. I realised after about three years, I'm like, yeah, I don't belong here really. Because I was saying, my thing always used to be anyone can be a DJ. And I think I can genuinely do and i think why wouldn't you just have brilliant musicians playing records at you and saying now look at the djs on six music you got keris iggy pop jarvis had a show garvey whenever anyone from a band sits in on six music it's so much more interesting than than than, than broad some broadcasts are great don't get me wrong i love Kid cohen mark riley's fucking great Robert mark's a musician for fuck's sake don't forget that you know um so you know it's um it's weird, but the the radio feedback, yeah, I just, because the listeners were communicating with us a lot, so we realised we'd built a community. So, yeah, that was that was nice when you knew that they were into stuff. You had a little regular audience and then new people would zip in. I like that, you know. That That is a daily thing. I quite enjoyed that, yeah. Mark's brilliant, isn't he? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about your writing process, but you've just answered that. So, <laughs> in the Live at the Apollo, yeah. uh, that, I remember watching that and thinking, that must be really uncomfortable to speak about. How did that feel, that kind of I remember no, when I did it first, it was just, I, uh, I hadn't done stand-up for, uh, God, nearly eight years. And um, a television programme said, are we doing a show where we want to swap an English comedian with an American comedian? Would you like to do it? And I went, I haven't done stand-up in eight years. And they went, brilliant. It can be about your return to stand-up. It can be about how you come up with a new 20 minutes of material. And I was in America having to come up with a new set. And I thought, well, what can I talk about? And this business with my daughter, a few of those things in that routine genuinely happened. Like the beer in the fridge is true. That actually happened. That lad did put beer in my fridge. So... Um, Genuinely, he did. Um, but um, uh, so the I thought I'd do that, and because I was in America, I felt more. Oh, I can talk about personal things. These people don't know me. Forgetting, of course, that the show was being filmed. So <laughs> when it went out, I, I remember uh, my wife being a little unhappy that I discussed that. But uh, and and we were having a discussion. And she was saying, "I don't think you should." And then my daughter ran into the room and went, "Daddy, Daddy." you talked about me on telly and flung her arms around me no. she was really really happy about it and uh everybody's talking to me at school now she was a little sort of isolated and she went she went no people are like think i'm hip and cool now and people at uni were like oh are you that daughter and she's got this weird sort of notoriety from being the daughter with from the comedy routine so it was odd but i was more talking about the fact that it was she was the vector not the full subject of it it was more about more about parenthood and dealing with that as a as a thing yeah we're nearly over aren't yeah we? yeah, these yeah. Are, well, the last last quick five yeah. questions so that's all right so have there ever been any opportunities you've turned down that you regretted uh, uh no i turned down ever doing uh, mock the week i'm still happy with that uh you, you never wanted i to was do offered it? team captain on okay. mock the week i never oh, okay. wanted to do it um any particular reason? No, I just I just thought there's there's already a new show, 
and also uh, I just you know I, I've already I'm already on a panel show. There's already a news one. Right. I don't see the point of it. Uh, um, no, I can't think of one. No, can't think of one right now. My tent is kind of. I'll, I'll say yes to things. I regret things I've said yes to. I'm sure if I thought about it, but that's, you know, you that, got, it's the nature of it, isn't it? You that's know. the next question. Ah, <laughs> reverse. Have anything? That and you I was trying to think. I think. Uh, oh yeah, if someone had said to me uh, the way television would go and that Buzzcocks would be on Dave all the time, I don't think I'd have done Buzzcocks. Okay. I um, don't think if I'd known how prolific panel games have been, you're just on all the time every night. I'm like, no. What I love is I met Mark Lamar recently, and, I was, and, I, and he, he inadvertently answered a question I meant to ask him. I didn't, I kind of didn't know I wanted to ask him. The the early shows of Buzzcocks from the Mark series, you know, you never see them anymore. Mm. It's because he has refusal on whether they're put out mm. or not, and he says no. Yeah, Amazing. yeah, which is fabulous. I yeah. think I admire that. Uh, who do you think is the most underrated person in the comedy industry? The un- underrated person in the comedy industry. Oh God. Yeah, I'm. I'm not in it enough to to take a swing at that. I mean, in the early days, I loved the comic, the comedian Martin Davis. I always thought was absolutely magnificent, and and he never seemed to get a, a, a fair shake in the early days. I always liked Martin, but um, no, yeah, I'm underrated. Uh, hang on, no, no, I can't. I can't. I'm trying to think, who should be more famous than they are. Oh, Munnery. Munnery. Munnery should be huge. Mm. Munnery should be, you know, doing theatre tours, big theatres. He's Munnery. That's, I think we're we're at the intersection with Munnery between it is performance art. Mm. I think it's magnificent what he does. Last question. If you could go back to any point in your career and give yourself one bit of advice, what would it be and when? Uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, Don't stop doing gigs when you do six music. Okay. Carry on doing gigs. Never stop doing stand-up. I should have done stand-up once a week all through that time and just kept my muscles flexed and been doing new material. Did you find coming back from that hard then, was it? Um, it's not so much that as... as Because uh, it was nice to come back to it with a new brain, but mm. uh, it was just weird coming back to it and having to start again. It was, yeah, it was more sort of... Uh, it felt weirder than it should have, really, and I wish that I'd been up to speed. I think I'd have been... Uh, would have Would have made the transition easier, yeah. Cool. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much, man. That was brilliant. Thanks. That was Phil. Hearing his thoughts on TV and how comedy and poetry continues to impact his life and his audiences and his views on paid and free fringe shows really resonated with me uh, and it's given me a lot to think about. And I can't thank him enough for giving up his time and for PBH Free Fringe for giving up their time and effort and and setting up the room and doing so much hard work behind the scenes. Genuinely, loads of people at that organisation have been amazingly positive and supportive of me and of the show and I can't thank them enough for the work that they put in. I'm going to put a link in the description so if you want to do an Edinburgh show next year with PBH Free Fringe do feel free to get in touch and talk to them and apply and all that sort of stuff Uh, maybe mention the podcast it'd be really nice for them to know who listened and you know that they enjoyed the work that went into this also if you want to thank Phil or myself our Twitter handles will be in the show notes for this podcast please do take the time to thank a guest if you've enjoyed it because it really helps most guests are very supportive of the show and love the idea and also help pass me on to other guests which is why the people are getting increasingly higher profile and and more interesting and all that sort of stuff so 
If you would like to support the show, a very easy way of doing that is by adding me and whoever the guest is you've enjoyed and saying, hey, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for doing the show. And then that way, they know there's a listenership. So when they support the show by passing me on to someone else, they can say, yeah, I've got loads of tweets. I was really excited. Oh, it was really lovely that they all, you know, enjoyed the episode. Yeah, yeah, you'll have a great time. So that's one way of helping out. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also enjoy my episode with Doug Stanhope about how he won the indie route and decided to focus on his core audience rather than choosing too many mainstream routes and options, or my interview with Armando Imanucci and his take on the evolution of TV and writing for different mediums. As I said before, can't thank you enough for the support in the break. Uh, I think it's really made this uh, a very productive and healthy thing for me. But uh, if you're new here, please do remember to hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please do remember to give us an honest, ideally positive review in iTunes. And if you want to support the show financially, please do consider giving us a donation on PayPal on my website, which is simonkane.co.uk, or becoming a patron from $1 an episode, which is ATP. Did you think that was worth ATP? Do you think this show is worth ATP? Honestly, if we can get the patrons up, this would make keeping this show as consistent and as high quality as I'd like to much easier. I take sort of uh, 12 to 18 hours to produce every episode. So if you imagine what a day and a half of your time is worth, uh, then factor that into whether you think it's worth ATP of your money. Um, at the moment, we I get about $28 an episode, and I really want to get it up to 100 So if you're sitting there thinking, you know what? I can afford $2 a month to keep Simon in his room editing stuff rather than doing anything else. Do that, please. Um, also, you can limit it. Like, if you can only give $1, you can limit it and go, I just won't give $1. Um, all, the, all the stuff's in the... Uh all the stuff's in the show notes, and you can find all the links to all the guests and everything we talked about there. The Arsenal Industry Podcast is a fruit that got in Gravity's Way production for the internet. All elements were created by me, comedian Simon Kane. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for subscribing. And thank you very much for rating and donating if you do. I'll see you all in about 14 days' time. Thank you very much for all the support. I really, really appreciate it. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.